the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good morning, everybody. Hello. Uh, My name is Simon, as Clive said. I'm one of the leaders here at Belmont, and I'm really excited to take us through the next in, our, in a series we just started in John's Gospel, and the series is entitled Come and See. Uh, Come and See is, are some words that we find on the lips of Jesus. It's something that Jesus says to those who are curious about finding out more about him. It's also some, some words that we find on the lips of his disciples as they invite other people who are curious to come and find out more about Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning, and in one way or another, you're here really because someone has said to you, come and see. Come and see for yourself. Come and have a look around. And if that's you, you are really, really welcome this morning. Whether you're with us in person or you're watching at home online, you are so welcome here this morning. Well, uh, Nick kicked us off last week and he reminded us that uh, this is a book that is really simple, it's clear and it's accessible and it's short. You could read it in about two hours, John's Gospel. But he also reminded us that this is a book that's really deep and profound. It has incredible depths and it rewards rereading and meditating on and studying further. So it's my prayer this morning that as we take a look, we'll see some of the clarity and simplicity, but hopefully as well, we'll see some depth and, some, and perhaps even some things that are mysterious. Well, let's uh, pray together and ask for God's help as we take a look this morning. Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light and so, Lord, we come to you this morning and we, we ask for that. We ask that you may show us things this morning. Shine a light, please, on your word that we might come away with greater understanding and a greater intimacy with you. Lord, may you be our teacher today, we pray. Amen. Well, allow me to read for you. We're going to be reading in John's Gospel in chapter 1. Please read along in your own copy of the Bible, whether that's paper or digital, but the words are going to be uh, on the screen uh, in front of you as well. Think of me as your tour guide this morning. Uh, This is a huge passage, and I just don't think I'll be able to do it justice. I'm going to point out some things for us this morning on the way, and I hope that'll be helpful to you. So let's, uh, let's make a start. Uh, with verse 1 of John's Gospel. These were our words from last week. Let's just recap them. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A couple of surprises, perhaps. No angels, no shepherds, no wise men, no stable, no baby Jesus. 
We're introduced, however, to something cosmic, magnificent, perhaps even philosophical. We're introduced to this person, the Word. This person who's pre-existing, eternal, who just simply is. We're introduced to the Word, who is God and who is with God. If that's a bit puzzling, you're right. It is a bit puzzling. These ideas get unpacked throughout the rest of John's Gospel, as we exp- and we'll explore that together through this series. We're also introduced to the Word's cosmic role in making and sustaining all things, a la Genesis 1. That verse 1 should look pretty familiar to you. And all of that is aptly summarized in two big ideas that we're going to bump into throughout John's Gospel, light and life. Well, let's carry on reading because those are our verses from last week. Here's some new stuff for us. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Well, I mentioned that this book is a great place to start. It's simple, it's clear, it's accessible. It was the first book of the Bible that I ever read. Was that true for anyone else at all? Pop a hand in the air if John was the first book of the Bible you read. It's often recommended as the place to start. It's a great place to start because it's filled with eyewitness evidence. Witness testify, testimony. These are words that are going to come up frequently throughout John's gospel. It's filled with eyewitness evidence that demonstrates and points to the truthfulness of some of the big claims that we're going to see in John chapter 1. Namely, that Jesus is truly man, like us in every way, and he's truly God. He's divine. So I want you to look out for, as we work our way through this series, courtroom language, language of witness, testimony, testifying. This is building a proof. There's evidence for this stuff. And so you're going to hear that regular beat of testimony, testify, witness, as we work our way through the gospel. The first witness on the stand is identified here. That's John the Baptist. You're going to hear a great deal more about him in coming weeks, so I'm just going to leave him there. Alongside that theme related to witness and evidence is another one, and that's faith and believing. This isn't just about proof and raw facts, data and evidence. There's a response to give that all might believe. And faith, believing and receiving is a big theme that we're going to bump into in John's Gospel. Well, let's carry on. We've also got here this theme, once again, of light. Jesus, the Word, is described as the true light that's coming into the world. We've seen that one already in verses 1 to 5. What does it mean, though, for this light to enter the world, for it to come into the world? That's something we're going to take a look at in a few moments, too. Well, let's carry on reading from verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. 
He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. There's another theme running alongside all of this, and that's one we may not have been expecting. That's that the word... Jesus is going to be rejected. We're getting hints right at the outset that not everything's going to go well for our central character. That eventually he would be rejected by the world that he made and rejected by his very own. We can see hints and glimmers of the cross and the passion coming already. And by giving this theme right at the outset, John's just making clear that we know that those things, the crucifixion and the passion, they are built in to the story we're reading. But fortunately, uh, rejection isn't the only response. And it certainly doesn't have to be. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who said yes, to those who believed in his name, he gave something. He gave a gift, a personal individual gift that would change the lives of the individuals that make up the world that he's made and he would make them give them the right or the power the authority to become children of God they'd be changed they would become children of God this is a book that thinks people can change that thinks people can become entirely new This is a book that believes in conversion, people going from darkness to light, death to life. And we find all of this just in our our opening verses of John. These are just things that we could spot and and follow up and find find out more about as we read John's gospel. You'll have noticed by now that John isn't particularly interested in... In nuance, he's not particularly interested in uh, fine shades of grey. He's all about clarity, light and dark, life and death, sight and blindness. John portrays a Jesus who is clear. And coming to him is that move from darkness to light, death to life, blindness to sight. We're going to see more and more about that as we work our way through this gospel. Now, so far, we've just been observing. We're just pointing stuff out as we go. But we can take words like this, and they have incredible depth, meaning, application, and implication for our own lives. Imagine if you were reading through this, and you come across something like uh, verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Imagine if you're a secret believer persecuted you in your own nation, region, and family, and you come across the idea that Jesus was also rejected. Suddenly, in your isolation, you've got solidarity with Jesus. Imagine, just like John told us uh, about what's going on at Spree, imagine you're a child here or a teenager here. You've been brought up here, hearing the sights and sounds of church, and you come across something like verse 13. And you think, wow, so just because mum and dad believe, that doesn't make me a child of God. 
It's about something else. It's about my own commitment, receiving of, believing in Jesus. We think that might be going on right now as folks are meeting out at the Spree conference. Isn't that amazing? Or perhaps just imagine you're here this morning and you're skeptical or you're curious and you come across something like verse 7. It hits you that, wow, testimony, witness, evidence. There's proof for some of this stuff. This is a book that can have extraordinary impact on people's lives. Well, let's pause it there. I'm going to take us through the rest in a, in a few moments' time. Um, but allow, you, allow me to give you a glimpse into, into my own uh, story and my own uh, interaction with the Gospel of John. It was the first book of the Bible that I ever read. And I need to take you back to the summer of 2006, at which point uh, I'm a relatively angry atheist. I'm a big fan of the National Secularization Society and of all the cool people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. That's me, and I'm not particularly interested in church, not particularly interested in Jesus. In fact, I'm quite angry about people who do go to church. I think you're all wasting your time. That was me in 2006, until I read a book. It's called uh, Yes Man. I don't know whether you've read it before. Uh, It's by a UK journalist whose name is uh, Danny Wallace. And uh, his life is in a bit of a rut. He's saying no to everything. He's saying no to his friends, no to opportunity, no to fun, no to the pub. He's just saying no too much. Until he meets this man on a bus. It's one of those days in London, and you can kind of imagine it, where the tubes are on strike and you've had to, you've had to get a long uh, replacement bus service. And he's, he's sat to a, next to a man on a bus. And this man, as they get talking about life in general, says to him, and he hears this in kind of prophetic, wondrous terms. He said to him, you should say yes more. And Danny Wallace, rather than thinking that's a suggestion to, oh, you should be open to a few more things. No, he takes it literally Say yes more, as in only say yes. Say yes to every opportunity that comes your way. And this book chronicles his adventures. All the things that happened to this guy as he just said yes to the things in his life. And I just picked this up and I thought, oh, this is really, really exciting. Someone's gone from having a pretty uh, dull, nondescript life and they've got into a whole load of adventures. So uh, rather foolishly, I quietly got on with my own little yes campaign. And you're not meant to tell anyone. You're just meant to resolve to say yes more. So I got on with that. And here's where it led me. Uh, In summer of 2006, I was invited to a party. A friend of mine, Tom, um, he was in my physics class. And he invited me to a party. I didn't particularly want to go. It was about 20 miles away out in the middle of nowhere in the fields of Essex. Uh, but I was on the yes campaign, so I said, I said yes. And so out at that party, we were, I was just miles and miles away from home. I'd driven in my, in my uh, Nissan Micra. And I got, got, got all the way there, and it's miles away from home. Do you want to stay over? Now, plenty of other people were staying over at this point, so I thought, yes, I'll stay over. Um, the following morning's a Sunday, just like, just like today, and about half of that group at this party, they're Christians, they're going off to church 20 miles away again in Chelmsford. Uh, Simon, you've got your car, would, uh, would you give us all a lift to church? 
Uh, it's a bit cheeky, but um, I'm on the Yes campaign and fuel isn't as it is now. So I said, yes. So I, I, head out to, I, I head out to the Christian Growth Center in Chelmsford. And I'm there in my Nissan Micro. It was a kind of, I think it was a kind of uh, lilac-y purple, nasty color. Um, we're there out the front. And Tom, he, uh, they're all about to go in. Tom says, do you want to come in? I, so I said, yes. And that was my first ever church service. That was me. They, they, they proudly recall their memories of me sat at the back with my arms crossed. Um, sorry if that's you today. Um, uh, with my arms crossed. And I remember absolutely nothing of that church service. Absolutely nothing whatsoever. But at the end of it, they said, oh, oh, it's the summertime. We're all going away next week um, for a church weekend away. There's going to be uh, go-karting, rock climbing. It's going to be great fun. Uh, we've actually still got space. Uh, does anyone else want to come? Uh, so I said, yes. <laughs> and uh, rather foolishly, I unwittingly exposed myself to a week of Christian teaching in the Peak District, uh, which I, I, just, I just didn't see coming. So, uh, but that was, at that point, one of the, one of the leaders there, uh, it was, it was a, a fantastic week, and I saw, uh, I, it was the first time hearing from Christians what they believed. I'd only heard it, I'm, I'm, I'm 18, and um, not from a Christian home, just, just a, a, a regular family, but I've never heard the gospel before. I've never heard about Jesus from Christians. I've only heard it caricatured by atheists, the media, and so on. So hearing from them, absolutely fascinating. One of the church leaders, here's a copy of John's gospel. Will you read it? Yes. Uh, and so that's where I started, in my room, at this conference center up in the Peak District, prayed one of those crazy prayers of, God, if you're real, uh, hello, and then, and then got going with the gospel. But this is a book that transforms ordinary lives. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason that that Jesus meets with and transforms ordinary people's lives. And that's because verse 14 of our passage. That's because the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, John says, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of truth, uh, full of grace and truth. But because the word became flesh, man like you and I, like one of us, because God came to earth, that gives us hope for ordinary lives being changed and being transformed by him. That's what verse 14 is all about. That's the big idea from our passage this morning. God comes to earth and he does that because he loves the world and he wants to transform ordinary people's lives. Don't get me wrong, John's gospel is cosmic, it's massive, and it's all about God's love for the world, for everyone. It's an offer for all, but he's really, really interested in individual lives and in individual people changed by Jesus. In fact, you could say that John's gospel is really just a handful of portraits, six or seven portraits, these interactions where Jesus has lengthy, lengthy conversations with individuals. And if you don't think that's possible for you, here, here's some of the people. Here's some of the people that he likes to speak with. Here's some of the people. Here's what they're like. Here's what they're like. If I can find it. I wrote it all down. 
Here's what they're like. Jesus has these lengthy conversations with people. Here's what some of them are like. They're world-weary cynics. Is that you? They're cultural outsiders. Is that you? They're those in the midst of long-term illness. Is that you? They're members of the establishment. They're pretty elite. They've got some resources, some money. Is that you? They're respected in society. Is that you? They're those who are perhaps in the midst of really fresh grief. Is that you? They're those who are really wavering. Those who've actually, when it comes to their discipleship, their religious life, they've hit a new low. He's quite happy having lengthy conversations with these individuals. And that's because God has stepped into our world. The word became flesh. This is where you get your final reference to the word. We met him there in verse 1, but we meet him again here in verse 14. In verse 1, the word is divine. In verse 14, the word is human. And in this little sentence, we enter into the mystery and the paradox of the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That precise word flesh is probably the harshest word John could have used. He could have said man. He could have said body. Instead, he says flesh. It's really gritty. He really has become like us in every way. I quite like, this is a big, it's big concepts. It's really tricky stuff, but I quite like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. If you're just struggling with this and it's all a bit too, um, uh, uh, just tricky to grapple with, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He talks about it in terms of a play. We all know who Shakespeare is and we all know who Hamlet is. He says, if Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare who starts this, who gets things going. He imagines a scenario in which Shakespeare, the author, writes himself into a play such that he can have a dialogue with Hamlet. That's kind of what's going on when the word becomes flesh. Well, it's a bit shocking for us to see, and it's almost impossible for us to grasp. How about this? Here's a quote to help us out with it. Here's what's being said when we say the word became flesh. It's completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and make himself known in created beings. Eternity in time, immensity in space, infinity in the finite, immutability in change, being in becoming. The all, as it were, in that which is nothing. This mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. But mystery and self-contradiction are not the same thing. We go on to read that the word made his dwelling among us. There's plenty of people who are pitching tents this week out at Spree or in Swindon at this uh, men's conference. That word, dwelling among us, quite literally means pitched his tent or encamped. God pitched his tent among us. If you want to understand this, we need to be wearing our Exodus glasses. This is talking about God being present amongst the people of Israel in the wilderness. God is right in the midst of his people. And the fact and what this means is that we can in Jesus see God. Take a look at the rest of our verses. And with this and a poem, we're going to close and move over to communion. 
It is because the word has become flesh that we can see God. So verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God as in, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Those last verses of the prologue there, they just claim that God, who's never been seen by human eyes, has been revealed in the human life of Jesus, who reflects his Father's glory and is full of grace and truth. And I think that's just a mystery and a wonder that's ours as followers of him to enjoy. And I pray that you would as we go uh, through this series together. I'm going to leave us with a a poem that I think, or it's from a sermon of St. Augustine that I think just captures some of the wonder. And then uh, Christine's going to lead us in communion. Perhaps we could close our eyes and just... um, Here's some of this. This is about uh, the word made flesh. Man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, and that the truth might be accused of false witness that the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Amen.